one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The Extra Ball. Hello, welcome to The Extra Ball from The Square Ball. This is Moscow introducing a slightly different episode to the usual Extra Ball format. There's not going to be a quiz, there's not going to be any arguing because the other two ain't here. Who is here with me is Rob Bagchi who at the moment is a sports writer for The Telegraph, where he's been since 2002. Before that, he wrote for The Guardian. And even before that, he worked at Sports Pages, which, because we're a, a fanzine at the Square Ball, people may remember Sports Pages as a, a bookshop in London, and it had a branch in Manchester as well. It's one of the few places, a specialist sports bookshop essentially, but one of the few places you could walk into and buy fanzines off the shelf. Is a lifelong Leeds fan dating back to what he describes as the arse end of the Riviera and he is the author of The Unforgiven in 2002 which is an incredible book about the Riviera that he wrote with Paul Rogerson. His new book is called The Biography of Leeds United, The Story of the Whites, just been published by Vision Sport Publishing and you can get it in all the good bookshops online, offline, anywhere you can find a book in a pandemic. It should be able to get you a a copy of this and um, it is an excellent work on the history of Leeds United Football Club from 1919 all the way up to the present day to 2020 and as many of you will know from listening to this podcast and reading my book this is a subject that's very close to my heart as well as Rob's so what better way to spend an hour than the two of us nattering about Rob's career, Rob's life, being Leeds fan and the history of our football club. Hope you enjoy listening to this. Hello, Rob. Thank you for coming on the Square Ball podcast. Hello, Moscow. No, it's a, a real privilege to be here. Thank you. The author now, as well as previously co-author of The Unforgiven, the best book I've ever read about the Riviera at Leeds and probably the best one about Leeds United in general, now also the biography of Leeds United, the story of the Whites. And we should probably clear up for listeners because a lot of people listening to this generously and astonishingly and I'm really grateful bought 100 years of Leeds United which I wrote and now here we are talking about the biography of Leeds United and it can be 
confusing, I guess. People might be wondering, well, I've read one book. Why is there now suddenly some bloke has come along <laughs> with another one that um, Moscow's talking about? But a lot of people asked me when mine came out, they wanted to know how long it took. So I think if we both answer the uh, the question of when these were written, I think that that sort of clears up where we're, we are at. Because I started mine in the Thomas Christensen slash Paul Heckingbottom era, which feels so long ago now and sort of wrote it through 1718 with an eye on. We were originally going to publish it at the start of 2019 to in the um, assumption that the centenary year was going to be a full year of celebration. And then it it ended up being put back because we realised that October, when the actual centenary was for my book, was going to be the best time for it. And unbeknownst to me throughout all that time, you were basically working on pretty much the same thing. Well, yes, I'd, um, you know, since writing The Unforgiven or co-writing it, I'd written about Leeds only sporadically, and certainly from 2006 onwards, the commission started to dry up, really. So I would pitch stuff to the editors of, of The Guardian and The Telegraph, and they'd take the odd piece. But it was only when Gary Monk came, and that season, certainly around September, October, November, started to kick off, that there, there seemed to be some more interest, and they were asking for more and more pieces. And it was around about then that I started having tentative discussions about doing a book. And it was just a case of what kind of book. I didn't actually start writing it like you until 2017-18. Again, with a view to doing a centenary history of the club. But I think I knew that your book was coming out long before you knew mine was, because yours was on Amazon a bit before. And then I saw that, that Rob Endicott was doing his, his official book. And though I finished the book right at the end of the 2019 season with a view of it coming out for the centenary it was really long and hadn't been edited and even now it's really long but I I think we felt that we had to give you breathing space because there wasn't you know not just you but but everyone because there just wouldn't be you know a market for for the same sort of books even though there is you know a difference between the two and the takes are, are are slightly different but, it, yeah, it was a, a case that we were secretly burrowing away in the same archives at the same time, I think. Yeah, it's funny. We should have teamed up. Yeah, that would have been ideal. And then it would have been even longer. I'm assuming, um, how many more pages did you write than you were contracted for? It, it's half as long again. And, and you can tell because the, the, the font is slightly smaller than I think that they would uh, that they had originally planned it to be. Um, so I think... I think the problem of, of, you know, it's a a writerly thing, but filing chapter by chapter is that you think, oh, this is great, but it's it's like six, seven, eight thousand words. And and then you don't have an army of editors behind you. So you have to sort of try and cut it down yourself and then they have a go and it's still very long. But I think I cut my rate in half by by filing 160,000 words for a book that was supposed to be about 90 to 100. Exactly the same. I pretty much... uh doubled mine and I remember I had this um one of my favorite moments of writing it that I always remember is finishing it because I did I was well over the deadline and finished it like um a kind of a student finishing the final essay it was six in the morning when I did the kind of the the full stop at the end of um and I think it it must have been Heckingbottom's last season that kind of got that far and then it was right done yeah and uh 
emailed it off and I opened a bottle of champagne and I drank it in two hours, watching the sun come up, fell asleep, woke up that afternoon and had an email from the publisher saying, this is great, well done, you need to cut 10,000 words because it's way too long. So, But the end result now is that we both have these books out and that means there's now twice as many books for people to read. And as I said before, The Unforgiven is, as far as I'm concerned, peerless and your work in the the Telegraph now and The Guardian before has always been incredible. Whenever people, whenever I'm trying to tell people about your writing, I always mention that you christened um, Jose Mourinho as the Warnock of Setubal, <laughs> which is just absolutely perfect. So because I'm in the, the, the happy position of having lots of people listening to this book, um, 100 years of Leeds United last year, I can't see any reason why. And I'm doing the pitch right at the start of the podcast before we talk about them both so that people get the idea. If you like reading one book about the history of Leeds United, there is absolutely no reason I can imagine why you would not also enjoy reading the biography of Leeds United by Rob Bakshi because it's dead good. And it's all, it's, and as you mentioned then, it's the same story, but it's told very differently. And we looked in different places and we found different details and different angles and things. And I liken it to, you know, if you're a Leeds United fan, you're not going to say, well, I've seen one game. I'm not going to watch another. You want to watch them every week. So if you want to read another book about Leeds United, this is um, another one that's out there. Again, people have, I've mentioned this when, um, when there was that rush of books around the time of uh, the centenary, there was mine and Rob Endicott and uh, Andrew Dalton had one out and uh, Heidi Hayes always got new ones on the go. People have lots of relatives who don't know what to buy them for Christmas, don't they? You know, tell one aunt to get one book and tell your other uncle to get another one and it all works out nicely. Well, it, it's really kind of you. And, and, and you know, when the, you relaunched the square ball in, in the guise that you did and, and the way that, that you've been writing about Leeds in, in the newsletters and the way all of you have done with this podcast, it's been a huge inspiration to me because I, I, it's difficult at my age, like I'm 53 now, you know, I, I got a real sense that the club is a football club from 2009, 10, 11, you know, was really dying. And I, I think you've kept that, that flame alive as much as anybody because I felt we were drifting towards irrelevance, not as a soap opera, but, but, but as, a, as a club, as a club that played football, as this thing of huge meaning for people that had grown up with them and, and wished them well. And that was one of the reasons that that I was able to keep so well informed about it. And and the work that, that you did, particularly on, on Ken Bates, I just found really energising, influential, and I can't wait to see what's going to come in future years when well, he's no longer capable of uh, of suing us. Yes, the, the days when Ken can't answer back are something to really look forward to. I think you must have... So I mentioned you, you write for The Telegraph now and you were at The Guardian before, but you probably sold the square ball in your days at sports pages we did yeah i I worked there from uh, 1991 to 2002 so we had both the square ball and the hanging sheep uh, in the heyday of of, of fanzines and and sold them both in in, in big numbers i think Leeds have always had a, a big following in london what was strange about working in that bookshop i i i took I think like lots of people, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I when I left university. I, I did history and knew I wanted to write, but I was so frightened of, of, of making the wrong mistake, uh, sorry, of, of taking a making a mistake and taking the wrong job and, and sort of boxing myself in that 
a bookshop seemed ideal, even though the pay was wasn't brilliant um, to say the least. Particularly not you know having to pay rent in London, but you know it, it really gave me time to almost hoover up the content of the books that were on the shelves, which has been a, a huge part of informing what I've written since. You know, just taking notebooks of, of, of you know obscure biographies and just getting three or four little lines, and I think well. One day that might come in useful, but yeah, we did. We we sold the square ball and we sold we sold hundreds of fanzines. And you must have uh, speaking of influential books going back. Um, Andrew Moron, Leeds United player by player. Well, in some ways, I don't know Andrew, but but he he's the forgotten man of all this really, because both his his biography of Reevy and that book, which uh, the, the player by player, the Guinness is it Guinness that that uh, is oh. on this? Yeah, but. Um, it, it, it's a it's a work of art. It really is. Uh, to to be able to 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 write so concisely those those short essays about players and just sum up not just how they played but their character. It, it it's a masterpiece. And I, I'm always surprised that so few people have heard of it. It was absolutely the the book that I mean I must have got. It came out when just after Leeds had won the league because of the title winning team ninety two is the the last players in it so I would have been 11 12 and reading through that it meant that as a precocious 13 year old I could very confidently sort of stitch together I would be watching John Sheridan playing for Sheffield Wednesday on television occasionally and I could confidently talk about oh well yes of course well he did this this and that for Leeds United that I know everything about that because I've read this beautifully put together and incredibly written book but yeah, it was definitely, that was my guide to so much of the Riviera and everything that I, I hadn't seen before. And being able to make those connections between the players who were playing then and sort of seeing Dennis Irwin playing for Man United and looking in this book and saying, he's wearing a Leeds kit here. Why is he now poncing around with the Premier League winner's medal for, for Manchester United? And sort of learning all that kind of stuff was incredibly formative. Yeah, I, I think it was key. I mean, I, I do remember being that that bit older than you that, that sort of seeing that team, and and the, the the back end of well, the very very back end of the the, the Riviera, but it was that book, but also the the, the Glory Years video that came out in about oh, eighty seven, eighty eight, something like that, yeah. um, a, a, that, that really sort of reconnected the club with its past. Really, Andy P, uh, who writes for the fans, he once made a. Um, an interesting point to me about that video that until it came out, players like Billy Bremner, Norman Hunter, I mean, Bremner would have been the manager at that point, Norman yeah. Hunter as a coach. Nobody actually really cared about what they'd done as players because they were just old men hanging around doing a bad job of running Leeds United. Alan Clark had gotten relegated. I'm sure that there was a lot of the, the older guard who'd uh, seen them play and still revered them as the brilliant players they were. But to a lot of kids in the the mid to late 80s, history was completely irrelevant because you couldn't just go on YouTube and see Eddie Gray dribbling around six players. I mean, how often, probably, I don't know how many times I've seen Eddie Gray's goals against Burnley in my adult life, but it must be hundreds, if not thousands. That might be an exaggeration. I don't care. It's a lot because it's just there now. You can find it anytime. But in 1987, when was the last time that I'd ever been on television? And if you missed it, you didn't see it, so all you knew about Eddie Gray, he was off in probably in Whitley Bay at that point, trying to keep them get them going. So history 
for a time in the, the mid-80s, probably uh, football and Leeds' darkest point yeah, wasn't I mean, really there to help. No, it wasn't. I mean, I think you, you may have been lucky to see them on football focus maybe once every three or four years. And, and I remember that there used to be classified sections at the back of, of, of When Saturday Comes and, and World Soccer. And, uh, you know, you'd send off the videos at, at 1999 and there'd be compilations that people had sort of taped off the telly, you know, from, from Calendar or, or, or from Look North. And you'd be jarringly, I mean, barely edited together and, you know, full of uh, tracking and, and snow. And that would be your only chance until that video came out, really. And you're... Uh... You did see some of Eddie Gray playing as a. You described it to Graham Smith in the the Evening Policy of the Week as the arse end of the Reeve era. Is kind of when you yeah you came to Leeds. I mean, I, I'm I'm from Wakefield, so you know, not not too far away, and I'm fortunate enough to have have a, an older brother who's who's he's only 15 months older than me. So he he was the one who who was pushing against the parents, not not wanting you to go. You're too young, so. I do remember going to a game in that 73-74 season against Man City, but I mean, really the things I remember most about it are the floodlights and, and, and seeing the pitch and, and the swearing and the smoke rather than the fact that I know that Lorimer scored and we won with a penalty 1-0, but really I only know that because I've seen it. It's all about the, the, the sensations really. And then... I mean, we went sporadically for the next couple of years, but from about 76 onwards, I think we had our first junior season ticket and uh, we went with a friend of my dad's who, who would take us and his two lads as well. So we saw, you know, the beginning of the real decline, really. There was an interesting, well, hopefully interesting point I, that occurred to me when I was reading that thing with Graham because you mentioned there that the, the reason your dad didn't take you is because your dad's from India and he didn't feel comfortable going to watch football at Elland Road. And I was intrigued by that in a sense of that level of discomfort for your dad. I'm trying to work out, was it some kind of act of rebellion that you were like, well, you know, maybe my dad can't go there, but but I can. But there's a that's quite a an interesting break to make. I can imagine I wouldn't want to take my dad to a, a gig if it was a band that I liked, but I would know at least I could take him and it wouldn't be a problem. Whereas... Um, football matches in the 70s, 80s seems like a, a different deal. Yeah, I mean, the strange thing is that we subsequently learned that he had actually been in the 60s a couple of times and um, he came over from India in, in the mid-50s to do a, a, a postgraduate medical thing and, and he went to Edinburgh. And from Edinburgh, he then went to Middlesbrough. So he'd been to Ayrson Park and he'd been to Elland Road when he moved to, he started working at Huddersfield Hospital um, Infirmary. So he'd been to Elland Road a couple of times, but by, I think, by that point, I mean, I don't know whether it w- was a fear of, of, of racism or, or what would what would happen or whether it was a rebellion. I mean, he was very OK with us going. I, I think part of it was that he was more, th- more of a cricket man. Um, sorry, I think that's an alert from, uh, from <laughs> on, on my iPad. I'm sorry about that. Um, that's all right. And it wasn't necessarily a fear of, of the racism, though I, would, I wouldn't have wanted him to go in, in you know, the late 70s early 80s a bit later than, than when we started going because then it, it turned truly toxic I, I'm not sure if it was a rebellion against that because he was quite up for us going and, and it, after all it was his money that, <laughs> that paid for the ticket Leeds is always a, an odd club and it, it kind of it sent me thinking about the the character of the club historically and, and how it is now because although it did have that terrible 
strain of racism and fascism throughout the 80s in particular, which was as, as bad as it was anywhere from what I've, I've read, obviously not being there at the time and not being on the, the brunt of it at any point. But Leeds has also been quite a, a homely place for outcasts in, in many ways. It's always embraced the weird. It's always been comfortable with Albert Johansson and before him, Jerry Francis. And there's um, John Armand's name came up in, in the years before. He was pre-World War II as well, wasn't yes. he? Yes. So there's, there's this, this very rich history of being very welcoming and it, uh, to the modern day with Robbie Rogers. I, I think it's always significant that the only openly gay professional footballer was given a, a round of applause and a, a lap of honour around the pitch after he'd come out and come back to Leeds. So trying to always try to reconcile these two sides of, of Leeds now, how badly wrong it went in the, the 1980s when either side of that, it's been a, a club with a kind of a weird is probably the the wrong word, but I think about it's because I've been writing today about Marcelo Bielsa and Major Buckley and all the strange sort of quirks that link those people in Leeds being a place where it's kind of like, if you are different in some way, it will just say, well, that's just, you just be you and we'll be fine with it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that, that, that we have been a welcoming place for players of, of colour once, they, once they're actually in. It was, I mean, the racism, the overt racism was always to the opposition, largely. I mean, they say that, that, that Terry Connor used to, used to get stick off his own fans. I can't say I ever witnessed it, but I wouldn't be surprised because the, the level of racial tension and hatred that was, was pouring out at that point, you know, was on that scale. And, you know, the sight of so many people selling selling magazines and, and what have you outside the ground was always more dispiriting. But it, it never really put me off. I, would, I went to school with, with Anand Menon, who, who was invited on to do that Great Lives programme, and he chose Billy Bremner. Uh, and both Anand's parents are from India. And he said that, you know, he remembers going to Elland Road for a forest game where every single player he he says you know that everyone in the west end got up including the people who'd taken him because he'd gone to someone's birthday party and started abusing viv anderson even though he was stood next to him and and the guy on the program i was there as i mean he got me the gig only because i know him really but but i was there as the so-called expert on, on bremner and and one of the things that the presenter said you know was why didn't you just walk away you know why why didn't you just you know if, if people of color and I don't think it ever crossed my mind to do so. You know, it, it, it's the same reason that that people who disagree with Blair don't leave the Labour Party, or people who you know disagree with Corbyn haven't left the Labour Party or didn't. And and it's, I think it's a you stay and fight for for what you. I mean, I wish I'd done more with the lead. You know, we sold the the Leeds United uh, fans against racism and fascism fanzine in the shop, and we made sure that you know they got paid and everything. But but I wish I'd done more in that rather than rather than just you know sort of experiencing it and, and and feeling a bit intimidated by it you know in 81 82 83 around then those uh, ties that sort of bind people to Leeds United are interesting that strength of feeling that it can generate that overrules almost common sense in a, a lot of ways is an interesting factor of the story of the whole club because it's something that really comes out strongly in your book is how indifferent a lot of the city of Leeds has always been 
to the fact that there's been a even uh, the world's greatest football team at one point playing down at Elland Road, and it used to Don Reaver used to despair that nobody would he couldn't fill what was not even a particularly huge stadium at that time. Whereas the and I, it's sort of a chicken and egg question that I kept coming back to as to whether the late arrival of soccer as well and kind of the the way that rugby league dominated everything means that the people who actually got into Leeds United as an association football club who started it, kept it going, restarted it after Leeds City have been, followed it throughout Europe and then in in the last 15 years followed it to um, Exeter and Yeovil and everywhere else. Absolutely 100% committed to it. And yet it's a club in a city where the vast majority of the population wouldn't care if it closed down tomorrow. Yeah, I, I think I said this to, to you earlier that, that you know, I, I don't think we've ever been more popular than we are now. Um, and certainly, you know, the O'Leary team selling out the ground did it far more often than the Reavy team did. There's a there's a bit right at the beginning of, of Bremner's autobiography that, sorry, you're getting out for being second, where he... Um, he talks about it's going to take a generation uh, of success for for people to to you know to truly embrace this team, and it's it's almost like a it's right at the beginning of the book. He talks about you know people saying that that the halfback line of Bremner, Charlton, and Hunter it, it isn't a patch on what came before. You know that it, it, we can't ever hope to compare with Willis Edwards, Ernie Hart, and Wilf Copping. But what's really weird about that is that nobody wanted to watch them play either. I mean, they did, but not in not nothing like the capacity that, that you would have expected to go and watch them play. You know, they'd built all these big stands in the 20s and 30s. They discovered the players. That's an all-England half-back line, isn't it? Um, Edwards, Hart, Copping, you know, played at different times. And the crowds, even given the economic situation of the country, keep falling year on year. There's an interesting way, um, a bit of a track as well. And We were both tracking the, the crowds, I think, through the, yeah. the books and when it goes up, when Leeds are about to get relegated, as if people in Leeds, and there was certainly there was one report that said that Leeds were the absolute talk of the city because they were going to get relegated from Division 1 in the 1920s. But people still didn't go and watch them play. But then when they did get really bad, they would go because they wanted to see how bad this was. It was almost yeah. like a um, an invitation to a, an execution or something. That was the... Oh, there's something really macabre going on down Ellen's Road. We'll go and have a look at that. Yeah, there was always a solution, wasn't it? They put forward like you know that. Well, we'll build Lowfields Road. We'll get it. We'll get a tram to come round here. We'll get better trams to take them back to Swinegate quicker. We'll, you know, it's never happened, but we'll we'll build a we'll build a railway station. You know, down at the bottom of Ellen Road. All these things were seen. It was seen as somehow that its location maybe was one of the reasons that that it couldn't attract people but but i think you're right i think towards the end of those seasons people came at crunch moments maybe just maybe just to watch the drama maybe to watch the spectacle of 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 how bad it is and and you know it's always been a notorious crowd for for booing its own players hasn't it so it's um that's one of my favorite discoveries is the uh the report in the i think it's the start of the 1930s and i think it's the yorkshire post from memory but they do a comparison and and it's it's something I keep coming back to with the same question about the sort of the particular character of Leeds United within the civic city of of Leeds, where he, he makes the point that 
the crowd at Hunslet Parkside watching rugby league, they cheer them from the first minute to the last. They love all their players. They support them for the from the, the from the first whistle to the final whistle. But half a mile away at Elland Road, if the players aren't you know a goal up within five minutes, they're on the backs. They start booing, and it's a real consistent theme of people at the club appealing to the supporters, saying, "Look, will you please get off the players' backs?" Yeah, and. And that article really laid it out that it's not Leeds people, you know, it's not a problem with with people from the city of Leeds. It seems to be particularly just that little bit of Leeds centred on Elland Road. The people who want to go there have this weird thing that's different from the rest of the the city. Yeah, I mean, it's true. I mean, certainly when there's four of us would have season tickets next to each other for for years and and it would be just a constant... you know, it would be constantly moaning between us. It would be F word after F word. It would be just like a go up and down the line constantly. And and that's how we've always approached watching Leeds that, you know, maybe the standards that you, you aspire to are always or always were sort of tantalisingly out of reach. So you're always sort of venting this disappointment. But I, I wonder if, I wonder if rugby league, because it's such a conspicuous endeavour, isn't it, to play rugby league? There's a lot of smashing. There's a, you can tell when people are really trying and with football, I mean, obviously you can tell when they're trying, but it's easy to pretend that they're not trying. And, and, and you know, all those cries of the 50s of get some blood on your boots or, or get into them and, and all that, it, it, it seems as though they want a really, what's the word, like a really visceral experience out of football. They want they want a bit of blood and thunder. This is something that maybe has affected the character of, 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 of the club, as well as its relationship with the city. On the, uh, the location as well, I've just found the page in, in your book where um, this has got to be, it's the 30s, I think, somebody writing to the Yorkshire Evening Post under the name of Lover of Sport and Fresh Air, saying (laughs) that after a week's work, it requires a strong will and enthusiasm to go down Holbeck Way when there's hardly a green leaf or a blade of grass to be seen. Even as you stand in the ground, you seem to be weighted down by the heavy atmosphere. And when it's wet, dull or nasty, it's quite enough to make anyone stop at home. What a pity the ground could not be moved to Round Hay, Headingley or Chapel Town, where it would be a pleasant ride or walk, even if your team does disappoint. It is. I, I was thrilled to, to discover that because there's, there's a, something in the in the 50s as well where someone, oh, actually I think it's during the it's during when Charles was re-signed, complaining about the, the ground being in the wrong part of Leeds. And you think, you know, I'm not a Leeds native, you know, from... 10 miles south and it never really dawned on me how how territorial or or you know just that concept of on a nice day out you know rather than it's not the football so much it's the whole day's experience um i wonder if it had been in the north of the city would it have made much of a difference but i don't know i mean there's this huge thing at the end of the 19th century beginning of the 20th century where where Football in, in certainly in the West Riding is just seen as entirely a Sheffield thing, isn't it? That all the other clubs that, that that came through, it was always like Sheffield was a centre of Yorkshire football, uh, and because there was massive enthusiasm for it in Sheffield, but this was Northern Union territory. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I have a, a theory that I, I didn't put it strongly in the book because it sort of occurred to me afterwards when I was looking at it again and trying to answer this question of what is the problem with Leeds United fans and just soccer I still like the word soccer in Leeds in general I sort of have this idea that because rugby union sorry not it wasn't rugby union but rugby in general was tied to church and so that would be Saturday and Sunday taken care of and then in summer the rugby club switched to cricket so there wasn't a break and you only had half a day off from work it was only Saturday afternoons that people got off so you only had one choice and it was very drilled that society in Leeds for workers was rugby church and that's that's your leisure time all taken care of so then the people who ended up being interested in soccer and starting soccer clubs and getting into that my idea is are they the people who didn't go to church who didn't have this kind of this strong moral Christian fibre, basically the the criminal element, the people who were just <laughs> ne'er-do-wells, didn't bother going to church on Sundays, had leisure time, but never been had never been sucked into the, the idea of it was muscular Christianity was what linked sport and church at the time. Whereas the earlier beginnings of um, of association football in other places where it was kind of a, a, a strong arrival to rugby at the outset or in other parts of the country there was no rugby for it to have to overcome they never had that that problem and it just meant that yeah Leeds City I suppose the, the way that it it ended up going down under all sorts of financial shenanigans and then Leeds United having these terraces full of people who would just stand there and yell mean things at all the old players just suggests that it's all the not nice people who got into football in Leeds. Well, I think there's something in, in that, yeah. I mean, I, I think there's a line in, in, in your book and in mine, I think, where, where where they say in the 20s or the 30s, when they're doing yet another fundraising initiative, you know, we've had great support from the licensing trade. And I, I wonder if that's got, you know, maybe temperance people, maybe, you know, the church was a rugby thing. I, I don't know, but I think it's a really interesting thesis. A lot of this, we've immediately gone into the pre Riviera, which is significant, I think. I know you wrote The Unforgiven, which is about the Riviera, and you've mentioned to me before that in there, the years before Don Riviera came, and I, I don't think you're alone in thinking this, nobody really has ever bothered about Leeds United pre-Riviera. There was John Charles, and we know that 
uh, Major Frank Buckley was famous at Wolves. But other than that, it felt, I had the idea, certainly before setting out and writing it, that doing the part of the book before Reavy came would be difficult because there would be essentially nothing to talk about because the fire in the West End in 1956 being a, a really significant part of it, meaning that all the records just aren't there. It's all destroyed. So how do you find anything? And then secondly, well, Leeds were just rubbish then anyway. So I approached that period thinking it's going to be difficult to find anything to say, but also I'll probably get through it in a couple of chapters because there won't be anything to say. How wrong I ended up being. And uh, what page does Reavy turn up in yours? Let's have Uh, a... Is somewhere around, just at random, right... John Charles is being sold on page 127. So a little bit after that. So about a page 150, um, which is not far off halfway, which is not what most books about Leeds Knights history have been like. No. And, and I think, I mean, one of the things that I wanted to do was I co-wrote that book with my friend, Paul Rogerson, but we focused very narrowly on that period, presuming that nobody would be at all interested in anything that had gone before, as you say, because nothing appeared to have happened. And I, I, I mean, it was a different process back then, but I mean, I essentially wrote the first half of, you know, the early part of the book and he wrote the, he wrote the last bit and then we sort of rewrote and, and melded it together. So it, it was my line saying at the beginning saying, you know, it was one long phony war. Leeds United might as well not have existed before 1961. And you know, how, what a cruel, flippant, dismissive thing to say. But at the time I wrote it, I, I, I genuinely thought, apart from John Charles, who's you know we did we did mention, I, you know, I thought it was it was pretty much accurate or an accurate in, in truly empirical terms. Is that the right word? You know, it, in terms of success and and in terms of impact, it had been a complete and utter waste of time. But going back and and deciding to start in 1919 with this one. Like you, I thought, no one's really going to be interested. But the problem was, the more you dug, the more fascinating it seemed. And the themes that are there in 1919 are still here today. As we talked about this, this in a sense, the club has an unrequited love affair with the city, not the other way around. You know, the, the club is always asking for people, or was until very recently, you know, he's always just saying, you know, come on. Come on, please, please support us, please love us. And and the, the city is the one that turns its back. But now that's you know, that's changed in more recent years. But but those themes from you know the, the the struggle to establish the club and then you know the whole Huddersfield business and the fantastic stuff about Hilton Crowther, the having to having to hire someone to well, you know, we don't know exactly what happened, but you know, get a correspondent in so that he can get divorced and then he marries um somebody else and and needing the money to pay for his divorce you know it's all just really fascinating and it's quite um significant as well i mean hilton and mona vivian is uh, the woman he ended up marrying the the stage star he ended up marrying and the way that that meant that the club had to repay its debt for people who've not read either of these books hilton crowther had been he basically after failing to move huddersfield to take Leeds city's place at elland road um, bankrolled Leeds United until they were promoted and then coinciding with his his divorce said right I need as much of that money back as you can spare and then announcing that he needed it now otherwise the club was going under and that ended up 
I think one of the reasons Leeds was essentially nothing before 1961 was um, having to pay that that debt. They were under, it was a £35,000 bond that they were paying. Um, they had to pay the interest on that every year to the bondholders before they could even think about signing a footballer or improving the stands. For 25 years, it took them until uh, the 1950s. So there's a huge explanation there that was a really exciting thing to discover. That's why we were rubbish. Yeah. And what a story. It was. I mean, but, but it, it's a, the thing that the bond was, was it was it was a remarkable investment opportunity for so many people. And they did it. They did drum up just about enough to, to pay off Crowther. But, you know, the price that they paid for that over the next 20 years was just was just, you know, it, it, it cut the club off as it's off offered its knees you know it's why they sold copping it's why they sold spruston it's why you know we were a selling club you know because they needed every year to to get this money to pay off the bondholders to give them their interest because interest rates had crashed hadn't they during the great depression i think bank rate was down at two percent and they were still paying out seven and a half percent return on these on these bonds because it that's what they'd agreed to when when they'd borrowed the money there's two ways of looking at the kind of the, the city's rush to save the football club in 1925. It's the, the Lenders of Fiverr campaign, which is one of the few bits of sort of surviving pre, I, I call it prehistory before Reevee, because there's the Pathé News footage that you can see on YouTube and places. But the um, it, one way of thinking about it is that, oh, there was this sudden groundswell of support within Leeds that said, well, if the... The, the football club might be about to go under, so we better get down there and save it. And these stories of people going down there with bags of pennies that they've been saving for years and saying, yeah, I'll, I'll buy a bond. But then the other part of it is exactly as you said, they were offering 7.5% interest. So it's no wonder everybody in Leeds was like, right, bloody hell, I'm getting down there because I'm going to make a killing on this and sod yeah. the football club. Yeah, and, and, and the times that, that, that they had to go back to the bondholders and say, can you take a holiday? Can we cut the interest rate? They did take it eventually particularly you know in the run-up to the war and then during the war but there was very little you know they also put you know the possibility of debt forgiveness you know they'd had a significant return on their fivers that they put in you know can you write it off and, and nobody or, or nearly nobody said yes it was like well hang on a minute it, i want my money which is you know fair enough in one way it's just it just saddled the club with well it was like a millstone wasn't it throughout the 20s and 30s that they could never escape from it I still think I attribute it to uh, why we had to end up selling John Charles because the money uh, that could have been spent on a new main stand was all going on paying this stuff as well. And so suddenly 1956 comes along, we're in Division 1, we've got the world's best player who we've been hiding in Division 2 for five years. But because nobody spent any money on that main stand since about 1905 when it was first built and they put a a roof on it for Leeds City, one night, electrical fault, boom, all gone, John Charles sold. And we'd started so well that season as well, our first season back in the first division, you'd think, you know, we were ready to establish ourselves. But because nobody had spent a penny on the stadium for 25 years, it, that came back to bite us at just absolutely the worst moment. So I blame I blame that deal for absolutely everything. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think you're right that it does have that really long tail that leads up to, to well through the 50s and, and beyond, you know, it, until, until you know, we get to Revy and success is the one thing that, that finally turns a club's financial situation around. 
only it's temporarily probably. we find but 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 it did there's a message there for um for what ken bates used to tell us and what we always used to say a good football team it can do a lot for a football club but um, you mentioned uh, or in amongst the the kind of the off field stuff some of the names we've mentioned ernie hart willis edwards wilf copping but sproston the players that we had in those years particularly sort of the, the pre-world war two ernie hart racked up 472 appearances willis edwards 444 and he ended up managing the club and was still there when Reavy turned up. He was on the, the coaching staff when yeah. Reavy became manager. We actually had some very, very good players, if not good teams. Um, there were a couple of... Dick Ray managed to get us up to fifth in the first division was the best pre Reavy finish. But there's there's some names back then that are not to be sniffed at. They are. And, and you know, you look at that top 10 of Leeds appearances and it's, it's nine Reavy boys and, and Gary Kelly. So, you, you, you know, you're blind to the fact that these lads from the 20s and 30s were one club men largely who, who you know, served for 12, 13, 14 years picking up their England caps. And yet, you know, it's my own ignorance. I'll, I, you know, I admit it, but I'd never really heard, I'd heard their names, but I didn't really know anything about them until until we went back in it and, and saw how influential they were as players and how well regarded they were throughout football. Cause it wasn't, it wasn't easy to get picked for England in the twenties and thirties. You know, you had a lot, there was a, it was a selection committee and there's a lot of competing interests and, and different clubs and Leeds never had anyone close to the selection committee to, to, you know, to bang the drum for their own players. So they must've been really good. And certainly one of the things that we spoke about is, is the material you've got to do your research with. Football is very secondary to, to a lot of the reports in the twenties and thirties. They do the results, but they don't actually tell you a great deal of, about what they what they were like. So it's only when Copping goes to Arsenal and he's like in the national press and there's proper, you know, match reports that we would recognise as match reports that you start to see what kind of player he must have been when playing for Leeds. A fearsome one, by all accounts. <laughs> but as, as you said, you know, when when we spoke before this, you know, at any other club, you know, Willis Edwards would 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 have a statue. That there'd be there'd be plaques about Ernie Hart. There would be where is this museum that we've been promised for so long? You know, these people would be in it and they would deserve to be in it. So I am, I am very, um, I'm, I'm very uh, remorseful for, for writing them off. Oh, we can, we gave lots of credit to Andrew Morant before, so maybe we'll give him some criticism now because his player by player book <laughs> does just have, I think there's two pages at the start where it's, it just kind of has statistics about, um, the pre Reavy players, and then it starts with the team just before kind of when Reavy turned up. So to be, he's probably given greater space in that book to some absolute, I mean, so it sounds unfair, but Dross that, yeah. that was keeping us down in the bottom of Division Two when Reavy took over as manager. Whereas these excellent players like Wolf Copping and Ernie Hart and Bert Sproston don't merit a mention. There is also there's uh, McDonald and um, his mate. Jared, yeah, yes, yeah. their uh, their book from the the mid eighties that ha- that had more details on those, yeah. but as well, I mean, criticising with one hand, but I think we've both discovered that the um, the ease of digitised newspaper archives just completely changes the game. It does when it comes to this. Certainly, in I mean, I started doing the Unforgiven in in nineteen ninety nine, um, 
and it was a case of you had to physically go to Leeds Library or the Collendale Newspaper Library, and and if you, if you had money, you could afford photocopies, but they were like fifty p a shot. So you you would just be taking notes off off cine not cinefilm microfilm, uh, microfiche sorry, and and you just be scrolling and scrolling and scrolling through newspapers looking for just mentions and references so that that british newspaper archive online even though it you know it only goes up to 1945 in any huge depth is a godsend yeah but it it does still stand though i think that if you look at a club like everton where you know dixie dean is revered and i think every young everton fan knows who who he is whereas our sort of equivalent of him tom jennings there is definitely a, a, a pre-Revy just kind of black hole at, at Leeds where the same assumption that we started with. Well, they all got burnt down in 1956. Yeah. John Charles was brilliant. We don't need to worry about anything else too much. And yet, you know, as, as we've discovered both pre and immediately post-war, it, it, it's the character that has shaped the club is there to be seen in, in those struggles. And yet, you know, even in 1947, when they've been relegated, they can still attract a manager of Frank Buckley's calibre. It's always been seen as as ripe for potential, you know, as a project for somebody that they that they could get hold of this club, that they could make a real success of it. And some of them are quickly disabused, and you know, and within a few months, are moaning about the fact that the crowds haven't come up or, or the difficulty of, of of finances and getting players. But everybody sort of arrives with the view that certainly then, you know, they're going to be the man. They're the one that's going to actually make this into an institution. Are you thinking of one Horatio Carter? I am, yeah, and and what a wonderful player he was by by every account. And yet, as a manager, he comes across as <laughs> he comes across as a bit of a shit, really, doesn't he? Uh, his his attitude towards the players um, was so condescending and patronising that that there is a famous story I think that John Charles told that that when he went into a pay rise uh, that that he just hooked his finger behind his shoulder and just went, you know, they'll not be getting, you'll not be getting a pay rise until you're as good as him. And he pointed to a portrait of himself uh, behind his desk, which was, you know, it, it seems to summon him, you know, the spirit of Rach up all over as a manager. He's a funny one because, and I think he's, he's integral. So in the, the timeline, Major Frank Buckley came after World War Two when we'd, uh, we'd, straight out of Division 1 as a, well, bomb did as a World War Two reference. That's, I probably could have put that better, but we'll, I'll stand by it. Um, yeah, Willis Edwards took over for a, a season. It all went drastically wrong and Billy Hampson had come back after the war and it was just a mess. Frank Buckley came in and he didn't get Leeds promoted, but he did a bit of a, a George Graham job in a, in a way of building. Not the, I suppose Graham didn't pay the attention to the infrastructure, so it's a bad comparison. Buckley himself will keep in singular built something like a modern football club at Elland Road with a scouting network, with youth systems, something that Revy became famous four years later and obviously Howard Wilkinson as well in the 90s, but Dick Ray back in the, the late 20s and 30s had been absolutely devoted to the idea of developing youth players. So there's kind of there's another sort of Leeds United strand going all the way through. And although... Buckley couldn't get us promoted and ended up quitting because he thought that Walsall, who were bottom of <laughs> the entire football league, yeah. had more ambition. But then Rage Carter came in, took over, got us promoted, but probably also simultaneously set the club back, if not 10 years. Well, five. I'm trying to think what would be the gap between him and, and Revy. Probably 10 years from Rage Carter finally 
being absolutely astounded that a man of his stature would not have his contract renewed by the club that he had been slagging off in the press all season. Yeah. Um, to when Don Revy finally got them back into the first division. Yeah, I mean that ne- that neglect of the youth system and and his complete that that line of his about you know you can either play or you can't play. There's this Jack Charlton there, you know, in in his autobiographies, you know, just saying how much he was yearning for some direction, for someone to tell him what to do, and then all they'd ever do was play five sides and and you know sprint one length of the pitch, jog the other up the goal line, and then and then you know jog. Round, so they do walking, sprinting, jogging, sprinting. You know, and that was their training. Uh, there was, you just felt that this club that Major Buckley had, had sorted out Fullerton Park, I think, and, and and made sure that the training ground was 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 sorted. And then Rach comes in, focuses entirely on the first team, still picks himself in 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 these floodlit friend, friendlies that, that 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 helped turn the club's finances around a bit. Always there, hogging the limelight, and then. He did lose his best player in in in, in Charles, obviously, and, and it would have been very difficult to to for Leeds to you know find somebody even approaching the, the weight of goals that he brought to the team. Never mind the leadership and everything else. But but then, yeah, it's to be surprised that he that he got canned when he'd done nothing but really make enemies among the squad and and with the directors and everybody else. It's funny with John Charles because he won't say anything bad about anybody and. I think that's his character all the way yeah. through, and yeah, it. I think he detected Rach Carter. It was. It must have been entirely one way, basically. Rach Carter, who had retired, finally retired from football, pretty much the day before he became manager of Leeds. He was swanning around the League of Ireland on huge yeah. wages, just winning every trophy and being fated by everyone. Suddenly, he's at Elland Road, and this apparently John Charles is supposed to be better than him. I don't think he, he was ever having it, and I think yeah. Charles. Uh, recognise that and he's the one person who kind of not having yeah I mean that, that's right you, Charles has not got a bad word to say about anyone you know having lost all his money you'd think he'd, his book would be full of, of, of you know bad mouth and the people who ripped him off but the only actual person that he has any animosity towards is and even then it's done in that in that typically polite way but it, it's there it, it, it's Rach Carter one of the things that becomes apparent when you you mentioned Jack Charlton there, where we're talking about John Charles and when we're talking about Major Frank Buckley and sort of tying the 100 and it's 101 years now of, of Leeds United together is a name like Major Frank Buckley has always felt like it's completely ancient history and the, the stories with him that lots of people know, most of them from Wolves about him injecting the players with monkey gland serum and all this stuff. It feels like it happened in a completely different time. This year, it's only a couple of months ago that we lost Jack Charlton. He still feels like a part of the, because he's so associated with the Riviera and then with managing islands and with being present on the television and being very present in people's minds, you, you, you wouldn't necessarily think he went back that far. But that's where the, the link starts to, to come. Jack Charlton made his debut for Major Frank Buckley and his, it was his final act before departing and he'd had him there as a schoolboy for a, a year or so. And um, when further back from that, Rach Carter leads it, uh, had tried to sign him before. He managed Don Revy at Hull and had worked with Major Frank Buckley. And so you, when you start thinking about those years before Revy the longevity of some of the people that we actually knew, Don Reeve's story himself going 
all the way back to to being managed by Rach Carter before in, inheriting his job, it starts to sort of, I felt like uncovering all this stuff about the pre-Reaver era really tied a lot of the loose ends of what we knew about Leeds United together in a an era when I never thought the answers would lie. I mean, that's right. The, the fact that you can, you look at Jack Charlton in the, right at the beginning of the of the 50s there, um, you know, making his debut for, for Frank Buckley and then, you know, still going off on his national service, coming back. But you, you think that the, at the end of his career, he's playing against Kevin Keegan. And at the beginning of his career, he's, he's playing alongside Albert Nightingale. And, and you think, you know, what, this is the huge span of, of, of what, what Jack did. And because Jack is more relatable to us from 1973, we can see a, a clear path back to 1973. Or people of our generation, or my generation, sorry, I'm not, not lumping you in with us, with us geriatrics. Well, even but, the modern era, he managed Gary yeah. Kelly for Ireland. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, so, but it does, it, it, it's like, certainly for the last 60 years, 70 years, isn't it, uh, that, that you can see a link and that link begins with 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 Charlton knitting it all together, and you know I, I always found it quite moving that even in 1996, that Reeve's been dead for for seven years, that that Charlton dedicates his autobiography to him, you know, to Don Reeve, you know, the man that that made everything possible, that and and he did, but but Jack also played a huge part in that. And then the uh, at the other end of of history, if you want to put it that grandly. Um, Marcelo Bielsa, where do you think he fits in to a 100-year picture of Leeds United Football Club? Well, I, I think that he is he's everything that we've ever wanted. And, and that sounds trite in a way, but it, it, he's the, the ability that he has had to unite the club and the city from where we were, the ability that, it, that he's had to build a coherent structure and have a, a way of playing that you know we find so enthralling. He, we finally got someone. Not you know I'm not saying that Reeve or Wilkinson or, don't have great stature, but we finally attracted someone who we think is up to it, was worthy of of the task that our own perception of, of of what we are as a football club. We've got Marcelo Bielsa because we deserve to have Marcelo Bielsa. Um, and you know you can get very rumy eyed about about how wonderful it's been and yet you know i can i can i hear all the time on on social media and other places that people think you know well he should park the bus or he should do a, I, I i do think it's a fundamental misreading of, of who he is you know you get marcelo bielsa you get marcelo bielsa that's it there's no point getting him and trying to trying to neuter him so i've, I've the last two years have been among the most enjoyable i've ever had and i think I would put him second only to Reevy, and that sounds ridiculous because of everything that Howard achieved. But I, I do think he's had a, a bigger effect on us, not as a fan base, but as a, a you know, as on the city of Leeds, on, on the way we feel about ourselves, on on who we are. Nobody ever did a, a mural of Howard Wilkinson when Leeds he was managing Leeds, did they? Well, they didn't, and and you know Howard, from what I've read, and and and. He wouldn't have wanted it anyway, but but mm. you know he deserves he deserves recognition. I think we've both given him that that you know that the ending in '96 wasn't representative of everything that he achieved, and, and you know who knows what the ending with with Bielsa will be like. But 
I would say that he's at least on a par with Howard in terms of of, of what we've had as as managers. And it's far more difficult to win things now. And you know, we all know about his line about the tyranny of trophies. But he has he has achieved something better than that. I think. I mean, it's easy for me to say because you know I was I was twenty five when we won the league. I've seen this team win the league, and I I you know I can only speak for us old buggers. You know that that. I want a club with integrity and and values and and you know progress more than I, you know, I'd love to win the FA Cup. I'd love to win the League Cup. I, you know, I've never you know I've never seen us win those competitions. I was alive, but I didn't see them. But I'm happy for us to be where we are right now, back in the Premier League and back everybody talking about us as befitting our stature, really. And I think that's a good point to say that if you want to know more about Leeds United's stature and how it befits having Marcelo Bielsa as manager. The biography of Leeds United, The Story of the Whites by Rob Bagchi, is published by VSP, Vision Sport. That's right. Yeah, I got that spot on. All good bookshops, isn't it? It is, the ones that are open anyway. But uh, Oh, that's a point. I forgot. <laughs> uh, bookshop.org.uk. That's the future, isn't it? It is, yeah. And uh, Amazon, if you have to. Thanks very much. No, thank you. That was brilliant. Really enjoyed it. The Extra Ball. 